Today on the Almond Journey podcast. As we hold and shell product for other growers, I learned that there were other growers that were actually doing a better job than I was uh, getting more production per acre. We quickly went to uh, be introduced to those growers and learn what they're doing that we weren't doing and we became better growers. Grower, holer, sheller, and processor Dave Fippen joins the show. Welcome to the Almond Journey podcast, brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I'm traveling up and down the valley, virtually, of course, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their operations, connect with their communities, and advance the almond industry. On today's episode, we're going to head east off of 99 between Ripon and Manteca to visit with Dave Fippen of Travail and Fippen, the partnership that started with a family of almond growers and vertically integrated over time. Dave grew up on the family almond and wine grape farm in the area, and after an associate's degree from Modesto Junior College, he was set to transfer to Cal Poly. But then, opportunity struck. So at that point in time, my dad was uh, ready to quit farming. He wanted to go play golf. And so there was a huge opportunity for me to uh, to join in the, the family operation. And uh, just four years behind me was my younger brother, Scott. As soon as he was through with, uh, with high school, my dad invited him to farm with me. And so uh, he and I started a partnership. And this was probably around 1975. And so we were farming where my mom and dad had left off. We started uh, a commercial spray business. We sprayed for a lot of other almond farmers and we uh, had a backhoe service. Back then uh, they were using wheeled backhoes to start uh, tree sites. So we did a lot of that. After starting those early businesses, in addition to farming, Dave and Scott spotted opportunity in almond holing. Their cousin Bud Travail joined them to form Travail and Fippen. My mom and dad and uh, dad and his two partners, the Travail family, had a, a small almond hauler. And so they did some hauling. Uh, they didn't shell in, the, in those days. Scott and I liked the almond hauling and opportunities there. So uh, in conjunction with our cousin, Bud Travail, who was the same age as I am, and he was farming the residuals of his mom and dad's farm, uh, we started what is now known as Travail and Fippen, and we built an almond hauler on a site over here on Graves Road in the Manteca area. And uh, everything that we've done since then has been pretty much, you know, bump into a wall and go another direction and bump into a wall and go in another direction. But basically, we started hauling and shelling our own product and uh, at that time decided to become a handler. And so we started representing our own product. And uh, there was quite a groundswell of that going on in the early mid 80s. So we provided that service for other growers, sometimes hauling, shelling, sometimes hauling and shelling and representing their product all the way through the market channels. So that's what we've been doing for the last 40 years. The groundswell he's referring to there is of other people becoming independent handlers. He says the landscape of handlers looks a lot different today than it did prior to that time. At the time, I'm remembering three major almond handlers when I first was introduced into the uh, almond business myself. There was, of course, Blue Diamond Growers, the co-op. They had a huge position in the almond industry. I, I'm guessing, you know, Blue Diamond knows better than I would, but I, I would guess they were 70 or 75% of the industry then. 
And there were a couple of independents that were fairly sizable. And it seems like my generation broke off and decided to be independent handlers. My brother and cousin and I were part of that. But, you know, back then there was probably maybe five handlers in the industry. Today, there's a hundred. So that really took off. Although Blue Diamond is still the dominant player in the industry, they're not the only dominant player now. To their credit, they've done a wonderful job. They've answered some of the questions of my generation that left Blue Diamond. They do a great job now of representing young and beginning almond farmers. So uh, maybe there was a correction there during my generation that's been fulfilled now. And of course, there was another significant groundswell going on. The dramatic increase in almond acreage and production had many in the industry wondering if demand could keep up. I remember going to a Blue Diamond grower meeting and uh, Glenn Stocker was the CEO of Blue Diamond at the time. And I remember him remarking that the uh, growers had produced 350 million pounds and uh, he was kind of patting himself on the back. What a great job they had done getting off the duff and and, uh, opening up foreign markets and uh, placed every one of those 350 million pounds into a global market. And thank God that they were able to do that. And so that was kind of the beginning of my career, thinking not only as a farmer, but thinking, where does that end product go and what are the opportunities for that? And, uh, you know, then in the early 90s, we talked about the approaching California crop of of a billion pounds. And, oh, my God, if we ever hit a billion pounds, what would we do? It's going to be a groundswell. And and would we find markets for a billion pounds? So that's that's kind of what the industry was very small then. I I don't remember the almond acreage that represented that 350 million pounds that Glenn Stocker was talking about. But I very much remember him remarking that, oh, my God, we had to be globetrotters to, to market 350 million pounds. And You and I know that it's 3 billion pounds this year. And my entire life, and not just me, but people that that I associated with in the almond industry, we were all fearful of outproducing the market. So our entire career, we oh my God, you know, we've planted more orchards and -and so-and-so's in the business now. And uh, a guy that used to be big in cotton is now doing almonds. And I don't know where the end is in sight. My entire life, we've been fearful of that big crop and, and would we be able to market it, just as Glenn Stocker talked about probably in the early 1970s. It's interesting to hear how this has been a concern all along as the almond industry has grown. For Dave, his perspective of what's possible really changed when he got involved with the leadership of the Almond Board. Right around the year 2000, I joined uh, the team at the Almond Board and became involved there in, in what the Almond Board does. And, and I've just completed that 20 years of service last August, I think was my last board meeting with the Almond Board. But that really, that awakened me to what the possibilities were. And in the year 2009 or 2010, the Almond Board commissioned uh, Deloitte. And we asked Deloitte, you know, right around then, uh, we were knocking on the door of 2 billion pounds. And we wondered if we produced more than 2 billion, if we went to 2 billion five, where would we place that? You know, would there be places in the global markets that we hadn't been and and hadn't knocked on the door yet? And that was a, a little over a year and a half study. And what really shocked me was when Deloitte come back to us with the facts and the answers to what they had learned, the only impediment to moving more almonds into the global markets was growers' ability and desire to fund that research and development of those markets. 
that changed my scope and my imagination to what the almond industry in California could really do because it, it places it back in grower hands. You know, when you think about it in that way, a grower makes a decision to invest in planting another 40 acres of almonds and he knows what the irrigation system is going to cost and he knows what the trees are going to cost and he knows it's going to take, you know, five or eight years before he uh, has positive cash flow. But how many growers really think about developing the market that's going to receive that new 40 acre ranch? And uh, that really took the blinders off of me and, and made me realize that it's really within our control. It's just, you know, do we want to invest as growers into developing more global markets? You know, and one of the things Deloitte uncovered is that we're doing very little in uh, Latin America, you know, Western Europe, the, the developed countries over there, we've done a great job. There's a lot more to be done in uh, India and China. You know, this was 10 years ago. And when you look now, uh, they were right about India and China. Those were emerging markets that we've, holy smokes, uh, who knew that India would be the number one uh, export destination for California almonds? I wouldn't have known it five years ago, but Deloitte predicted it. And they said, if you're willing to invest, probably you can move more almonds there. Uh, Dubai and those markets over there were kind of just getting dusted off and becoming a real possibility. Korea became a much bigger market. So, you know, I'm kind of more got the wind in my sails now. As long as the industry and industry members are willing to invest, I think we can do this three billion pound crop and probably a 3.5. But growers are going to have to think about not just what it costs to put that orchard in the ground, but what does it cost to develop a market for what that orchard is going to produce? I think that's the new concept that I really became awakened to in 2010. That's just one of the many lessons about this industry that Dave has learned and was generous enough to share with us for today's show. That leads us now into our featured conversation, where Dave shares more of those insights he's collected in his journey from grower to holer to sheller to processor starting with some lessons he learned from fellow growers. It just, I could talk for hours about it. Just when we went into our commercial hauling shelling business, we were pretty full of ourselves as third generation almond growers. We figured, you know, we're probably the beginning and the end of, of best practices in farming almonds. And as we hold and shelled product for other growers, I learned that there were other growers that were actually doing a better job than I was uh, getting more production per acre. And uh, we quickly went to uh, be introduced to those growers and learn what they're doing that we weren't doing. And, and we became better growers in that way. Then uh, moving from the hauler sheller operation to the handler operation, we had to learn that people that we were selling these almond to wanted to know more about how we grew them. And I'd say that's probably the number one change. Uh, if I look back 40 years as a young almond grower, I thought all I had to do was grow the crop and somebody else would sell it and somebody else would worry about all that. And I had every right to do that. I owned the property or I leased the property. I had the natural resources, the water right, the air right. And boy, were we wrong about that. So today we've learned that uh, consumers want to know how we're growing that crop. They want to know what products we're using, what uh, what kind of fertilizers we're using. They even want to know how we're treating the bees that we use to pollinate that crop. Now, 40 years ago, if you'd have told me that was that was a concern of consumers of California almonds, I'd have told you you're nuts. <laughs> but uh, we all know today that the consuming world is very concerned about 
bees and pollinator insects, and they're very concerned about our use of natural resources, especially water. They're very concerned about the air that we breathe in here in California, and are we being a good neighbor? And we actually kind of sort of got to ask permission to grow almonds on property that we paid a lot of money for. <laughs> so who would have thought that a long time ago? And that's what's really changed the way we grow almonds. And luckily for us, we've always had a good story. You know, we've always been respectful and mindful that uh, previous generations walked on some of this soil that we're farming. And so we had that kind of uh, deep embedded respect for the land, but we weren't talking to other people about it. And now we've learned that it's really important to share with other people that, yeah, my grandfather used to walk on that ranch over there where we're, we've got a 14-year-old almond orchard. And it's a big deal how we treat that land. And, uh, you know, me being of the age I am, I've got grandchildren walking on that ground now. And it's pretty important to me that we preserve it and preserve the opportunity for them to farm on it. So all of that's changed, and uh, some of it changed just because of uh, my demographic and my perspective in life, but it's changed because of the consumers that, that we rely on to buy our product. Right. I want to go back to something you said a little bit earlier, which is that you noticed that there were other growers getting more per acre than you were, and you were surprised, and you went and uh, asked them what they were doing. What types of things did you learn? Yeah, it had to do mostly with fertility and water. And uh, it's a great story to tell to the consumers that are concerned. When my brother and I took over from the previous generation, mostly our irrigation was gravity or flood. And it was pretty much on a calendar. You know, the water would become available on 20-day rotation. So we irrigated every 20 days. And uh, my brother and I converted all of the property that my mom and dad controlled and, and new property that we acquired after that time. And we went to sprinkler irrigation and uh, we thought we were pretty doggone efficient. I think those sprinkler irrigation irrigated orchards were in the 80 to 85 percentile of efficiency. We brought that schedule from 20 days down to 14 days and uh, not having the almond tree hurt for water in between each three week cycle seemed to do quite a bit for the size of the individual kernels. The other thing that I learned, uh, and this made you just specific to me, I always used the cheapest form of nitrogen I could find because I was conscious of the dollar inputs it took to raise the crop. And uh, we use more calcified, uh, we call it CAN-17. It's a liquid form and it was 17% nitrogen, but it had a lot of calcium in it. And that seemed to help make the kernel be robust. So we'd, we'd find in the sizer operation that there would be an almond that, that was very wide, but it wasn't plump as you rolled it around. And those growers that used, in my opinion, used more water and more calcified fertilizer or just maybe more nitrogen they filled that almond out and it weighed more. And of course that goes to uh, pounds per acre of the final crop. So that's really the thing that I learned. Uh, water was pretty darn important. And of course we just planted two more orchards this year and we've changed again the way we set up our irrigation system, trying to be more efficient with the water because people want us to be, but also because it makes sense to be. It, it costs money to pump water and it costs money to buy water, but you don't wanna be scotch with it as far as developing the tree or the ultimate fruit. So uh, that's a long answer and I apologize. No, 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 I like the long answers. And, and, and what did you change on these two most recent orchards? You know, um, some years ago, we, we, we thought sprinkler, uh, permanent sprinklers were all there was to do with uh, almond orchards. And sometime in the, uh, I think in the mid nineties, we converted to drip irrigation as we developed new orchards 
took out an orchard to add sprinklers. We uh, developed drip and my brother and I used dual line drip. We did some buried drip for a while. Then we went away from that and uh, just had dual line drip. So we started Young Orchards out on drip and we thought that was pretty efficient. And uh, now uh, we're incorporating two irrigation systems in there. We, uh, we have drip, but we also have micro sprinklers. And I introduced some time ago, we would introduce the micro sprinkler once the orchards came into production. So third or fourth or fifth leaf, somewhere in there, we're starting to worry about frost. So if we had well water to use during a frost night, we would uh, incorporate those micro sprinklers. Well, now we're using potted trees and they have kind of a pot medium that the roots are in. And when you place that root ball, whatever you want to call it, with that pot medium into the soil, there's a barrier between the native soil and that. And it's a real stinker to get the drip irrigation water to drip right on the spot where that potted tree is. Sometimes, you know, there's a there's an emitter every two feet on the drip line and maybe it's split where the tree is. And we have a hard time getting that water to move horizontally into that potted tree medium. And so anyhow, uh, one day my, my son-in-law and I were looking and said, why don't we uh, instead of starting them on drip, why don't we start them on micros? And uh, micros have a little plastic tabs where when you first put it in, it's only a three foot diameter circle. So we'd start the tree on that. And then later on in life, you know, three, four years later, you can break that tab and, and move that micro, you know, it's portable. It's got a little uh, tube on it and uh, move it to the center away from the tree. So now we actually start them on that little three foot circle and we don't put the drip tube out there until third or fourth leaf, which is the opposite of what we were doing. And uh, the reason for that, that little three foot diameter circle is the only water that we're putting on the orchard for the first year, or maybe even two years, if, if you're brave and want to go that far. Think of all the water between the trees, you know, there's maybe 16 feet from one tree to the next. So you're not irrigating all that space and you're not uh, propagating weeds that you then have to use a herbicide to control. I'm surprised we didn't think of it a lot sooner. <laughs> so the irrigation company that we designed these systems with, uh, they're asking us, okay, what, what are Nick and Dave thinking about is the perfect irrigation system this year? And, and uh, we like one valve to control whether you're gonna be drip or whether you're gonna be micro. And we also like one valve to control whether it's a pollinator row or whether it's a non-prel row, because we all know that the pollinators ripen at a different time than the non-prels. And maybe you wanna keep the pollinator rows irrigated while you're drying out the non-prel. So, you know, now we've got three or four pipes in that trench where we used to have one and we just keep changing ideas. But all the time we're doing this, we're maximizing the benefit of that, that rare natural resource, water, and using less of it on a per acre basis. Yet on a per tree basis, we might actually be applying more water to get that bigger crop to go from uh, the state average was 2,000 pounds of meats. Well, we want 3,000 or, or better yet, 4,000. You know, it's interesting to me that that's just a natural and economic reaction besides the public would like us to do that. So it's all coming together. And then with, if we get involved with CASP, we tell the world that we're doing that. It's a great story. Right, right. And what about some of the challenges uh, right now in executing on, you know, on, on trade and on some of this demand? What are you seeing there? Well, there's a political component to it, and we've all witnessed that the last uh, the last two or three years. Uh, so you can have the most healthy product there is, and you can make it available, and you can be will willing to have willing buyers like in China that are excited to buy your product. But when the two countries are uh, saber rattling to one another, and all of a sudden there's a uh, 
some kind of an impediment to you moving that product in there, like a, a 40% tariff, uh, that changes the field quite a bit. So there's a lot more to it than what the average farmer can do. And it's some of it's not in our hands. And it's one of the reasons almond growers need to be not only vested in the almond board, not only vested in the things on their ranch to produce a good crop, but they need to vest in political action committees that propel some of these market impediments uh, to not be in the way of our moving our product into those countries. Right. And what about on the logistics side? I know you have mentioned kind of some of the logistics challenges happening right now. Yeah, that that's another one that just slapped us in the face, or at least slapped me in the face. This almond grower didn't think about it, that uh, we're really handy to move agricultural products from California into the Pacific Rim, as long as they don't have a better use for those containers. But guess what? This year, they had a better, more profitable use for those containers that were bringing Chinese goods to the West Coast ports. And all of a sudden, uh, they really didn't want to share their empty containers with us so that we could move product offshore. So there's another one that uh, I don't think the average almond grower would have thought about that would be an impediment to trade and, and exporting what we now know to be the biggest crop in history. You know, and where do we have leverage? Who do we go to complain about those folks that don't make their containers available to us? Uh, mainly they're offshore companies. They're, they're not American-owned companies. And uh, where is our leverage in dealing with those folks? Again, going back to a political action committee, maybe, maybe it would have been better to uh, spend some capital with that pack instead of that new irrigation system that you just shined up in the orchard. Dave, I really enjoyed this. This has been great. Uh, you know, as you as you think about the decade to come, what's on the top of your mind for almonds? My absolute uh, most important message I could share with growers is to consider they know what it costs them per acre to plant an orchard and develop an orchard. Do they also think about developing the market that that orchard's going to produce? And uh, currently, every grower in California donates three cents a pound of their production to the almond board to do uh, more studies, to do research, to learn more of the uh, wonderful attributes of the almond kernel. And, and uh, we, we have a great committee that does that. And then we've got a fantastic marketing committee that develops opportunities to place almonds in more markets. So uh, the biggest thing I would share with growers is be mindful of investing in the marketing side as well as the production side, because it's equally important. If you produce 4,000 pounds of almonds, this year, but nobody is anxious to buy those, you really haven't done anything. Your bottom line isn't enhanced. So think about the marketing side. And while you're doing that, think about that CASP program that the Almond Board has developed. And uh, I think your handler would be very interested in you enrolling as many of those. Uh, I think there's eight different uh, segments on, on CASP that you could become involved with. And I think it's really, really important that growers take that next step and uh, find out it's a good comparison. You know, you can learn how you're doing against other growers without knowing which the name of that other grower. It, it's all held uh, in a way that your name and your information isn't shared with others, but cumulatively, your handler can take the information and the great information about what you're doing out there and share it with the ultimate consumer. So my message to almond growers is, don't just be worried about producing a lot of almonds on a per acre basis and very efficiently, but be investing in the marketing side of it because it's equally or greater of importance. 
Well, we certainly covered a lot in this episode from agronomics to logistics to marketing. Thank you so much to Dave Fippen for taking the time to be here on the program. As you heard Dave mention, consumers want to know more about where their food is coming from. And that brings us to today's ABC update. The California Almond Sustainability Program, or CASP, as you heard Dave call it, is a way for the almond industry to better tell its story to consumers. Through the CASP online portal, sustainablealmondgrowing.org, growers and processors can complete self-assessment modules and learn about alternative and best management practices. These CASP modules are designed to document your management practices while providing an opportunity to verify that your activities are up-to-date, practical, efficient, and sustainable. I'd invite you to participate in CASP and also to get involved with other opportunities with the Almond Board. Visit almonds.com forward slash events to see upcoming meetings and email industry at almondboard.com to learn more about participating on a committee. We believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of these industry leaders might spark a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. That's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to this show on your podcast platform of choice and pass it along to others in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together. <laughs>